I'm this Muslim kid from New Jersey who grew up surrounded by other Amens. No, seriously. In the school that I went to, there were two other Amens in my class. And that all changed when I was in seventh grade. I went from being just like any other Muslim kid to being the only one anyone has ever met. I walked in that first day so nervous. I was so scared of being judged or bullied. But something weird happened. Everyone just had questions. Some were dumb, like one kid asked if I lived in a pyramid. I said, yeah, you know that one off Broadway Market? That's my house. My dad is a mummy. He went, oh, that's so cool. But other times, the questions were really good. One kid asked me, if you eat pork by accident, would that still piss off Allah? Um, I don't know, probably not. Maybe? Sometimes, I didn't have the answer. Like this one kid asked me why my sister wore hijab. I legit didn't know, so I told him it was to hide an air conditioner that'd keep her cool in the desert. That kid didn't actually believe me, by the way. But still, that marked the beginning of a lifelong dedication to being the ambassador to all 7th graders and beyond. I just fell into it, but I thought, better they ask than assume. And that became my whole philosophy. It's why I wanted to become a journalist. I speak a little bit of Arabic, not to brag. But it's really helpful in a media climate so fixated on the Middle Easterners next door. And I got a really amazing job out of it. I'm a staff writer now at an extremely reputable magazine. I didn't even go to journalism school. But that's actually why I feel weird sometimes. Would I have gotten hired if I didn't speak Arabic? Do I fit in here? I googled it. It's called imposter syndrome. It's no one's fault. It's just the consequence of being the only person that you can relate to. And now that diversity and inclusion is something that every company seems to be chasing after, what does that mean for the roles us onlys play at our jobs? And I'm curious, how will our employers handle those changes too? I'm your host, Eamon Ismail, and this is Scoot Over. about great conversation, understanding one another, and being yourself. Scoot Over is brought to you by the Ariane de Rothschild Fellowship, a global initiative that over the last 10 years has brought together outstanding entrepreneurs and community leaders across religious, cultural, and geographical boundaries. Our executive producer is Feroz Ledeck, and it's produced by Ray Klonksy and Rima Shakir. I was a self-taught engineer and a classically trained engineer as well. Back in 1998, <laughs> there wasn't any like, you know, groups that I could turn to at the time or mentors that I knew of. I didn't even see people who looked like me in the space that I found my way in. And I say found my way because it wasn't something that 
I was planning on being in or navigating to, and I actually didn't know it was a career path or possibility. That's Talisa Daughtry. She's an Ariane de Rothschild fellow, and she knows exactly how I feel. Women of color make up only 4% of her industry. So she founded Fly Technista, a sort of startup that trains young girls with tech skills and hooks them up with reliable jobs in tech. She felt alone, so she did something about it. We all long to belong, right? You, you want to be in a space and you want to feel kindred and understood and supported. And like all of these things matter. It's not just matter in your career. They matter in life, right? What kept you motivated? Why not try a different industry if you didn't feel necessarily welcome? The challenging um, situation of overcoming this and why didn't I just leave is because why should I have to leave? Like, I really am great at what I do. Like, I really enjoy doing this. So for me to leave, you know, there's so many ideas and solutions that even I made in my own career with, you know, the collaboration of, you know, my coworkers. If I'm not, if I wasn't in that space or in this space, these things wouldn't have got built or created. So I often thought about that throughout my really rough journey, like in spite of, you know, facing homelessness at the collapse of like Wall Street and it, it became a choice. Like I didn't have to still, you know, be in New York City riding the E-train, building web products in Starbucks on Fifth Avenue. I didn't have to do that. I could have went back to Boston and I have family. But, you know, um, what made me want to stay in that space was knowing that, you know, I have these skills, I can create change, and I can also inspire and empower others to create change. I started off just having a simple newsletter with some of the colleagues I used to work with. And basically they would reach out to me and say, hey, Talisa, we have like this three month contract with this six month contract. And some of these companies wasn't toxic. They were super toxic. And I was just like, okay, if that means I have to work remote or, you know, I was trying to figure it out. And then I was like, maybe I could just give them like some tips on how not to be so toxic. And then it started becoming like just those things, like dropping tidbits to them and coming in and doing like a quick chat. And these were all things that I naturally was doing when I was in an organization or external of it. I just meshed that with my desire to connect people and then also to help businesses be less toxic. That's how Fly Tech needs to happen, like a happy little accident because it was a service that companies really needed. They needed to connect to women. They needed to engage with girls and women needed to find technical jobs and they also needed to find technical skills. So I thought to myself, what if people don't have access to a person like me? So how can I make this more widespread to reach more women and girls? When I came into the tech industry in the 90s, I came in and, and although I wasn't the only one I was the only one often within the discipline that I was in. And that's Leslie Slayton Brown. She's the chief diversity officer at HP. That longing to belong, that need to connect to your people, to have a sense of community, and the difficulty that we face in being alone. And so, the, her, the, the early part of what she was saying, I literally had a visceral response in my body. 
you know, conversations that happen, whether it's a TV program that people are talking about, um, some event that they're going to that you weren't invited to or included in, or just not a part of your culture, right? And some people come in and they don't fit in and now they go. And so it's like they come in the front door and they're out the back door. You feel like you're running on a treadmill sometimes. And so that was my inspiration in going into the diversity, equity and inclusion space is for people like Talisa and myself and not only to bring us in, but it's as important that when you get us here, that you do something with us, that we have a sense of belonging. That's how we create. That's how we innovate. And by the way, 12% of Americans are black, African and of African descent but only 3% in the Silicon Valley, which is the heartbeat, the innovation center, not only of, of technology and creating tech, but also economically. And that's what I fight for. There's space here for so many more of us. There's great, great BIPOC tech talent out there. We just have to disrupt the systems the processes that we use today to go and seek out that talent and attract that talent. I was asked by um, one of my new black coworkers how I was feeling during the pandemic. And I was like, I feel really good. I'm, I'm really glad I'm still employed. And so I'm just really grateful. And she was like, you're saying grateful a lot. And you, you sound like you are uh, like I was when I was younger, where I was just really happy to be in the room and I, I couldn't think of anything to complain about. And I was like, actually, I think I am doing that. Uh, I was so worried about biting the hand that feeds because maybe a part of me felt like a charity hire. I keep thinking about this um, imposter syndrome that, that I feel like I have, where I almost don't belong sometimes. You know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. Is there any work that's still necessary at these companies to kind of make that imposter syndrome go away? Or is it up to minorities to be low-key ambassadors? The imposter syndrome, I feel it's two parts. Like imposter really for me feels like, man, I don't know anything and I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> when you're hired somewhere, regardless of your education, you at that moment that you are brought into a space need to believe that you're here because you belong to be here and you're actually good at what you do. And the problem is with, you know, especially with individuals from underserved communities or underrepresented communities, we feel that we don't belong because, you know, we might not get the feedback or have, like you said, the, the credentials or academia experiences or accolades that maybe our colleagues might have. And if I was feeling like I was a checkbox hire, that imposter syndrome set in heavier for me because it felt like, did they bring me in because, you know, they seen these 400 plus pro interaction projects that I worked on that they were really like blown away by? Or is it because I'm a woman? And then sometimes it's like, it's both. They're like, wow, a woman did 400 of these incredible projects. So, you know, that imposter syndrome, I actually feel that is partially confidence syndrome. Like, so it's like, confidence in your skills, your abilities, and the confidence that you've earned and deserve and will prove and can add value. So, right, um, that's, that's just where I'm at with it. 
If I may comment too on the imposter syndrome, because I think that that word confidence really kind of struck me when Talisa said that. And so to your example, you've got people that could have come from these great schools and everything. Align yourself with them. Ask one of them to be your mentor, but you're there because you belong. We're here because we have something unique, different, and of value to the organizations that we're a part of. And so um, um, there's a saying that I like, uh, I don't know if my grandmother used to say this, where I got this from, but speak what you seek until you see what you say. One thing that I can't help but want to talk about is what happens to people when they don't feel welcome, when they don't feel like they are part of the cohesive group. I feel that employers miss so much when they don't have diverse teams, not just, you know, to look like a United Colors of Benetton ad, but what they actually miss out on is the flavoring and the strength that it brings. Like we bring our own unique perspective, our own unique experience, which comes with our unique lived life. And, you know, that helps us to ideate, innovate, you know, and we solve problems, which is basically why every business is in business, to solve a problem and to beat out their competition who are also trying to solve that problem. So, you know, when companies are not mindful of, you know, it's not about why they're beginning or why they're doing it or why diversity, equity, inclusion matters or having diverse teams Mm -hmm. matters. Who you don't have on your team could determine your ability to do that. That flavoring really matters. Like when employees, if they go into an organization without flavor and you're the flavor, everyone notices that you're there. And when that flavor gets taken away, they notice that it's gone. So, you know, I think about that with our own identities, like coming into these spaces when we're allowed to show up and be our full um And I know people misconstrued full authentic self. Does that mean that like you then just start showing up at work talking about your your weekend so casually or how you got your hair done or whatever? Like, no, that's not about that. It's about who you are as a person and your cultural experience or your other internal identifiers. How do they show up like when you're in these spaces? So... A part of me feels weird attributing value to the way that I was born, right? I didn't choose to become Muslim. I was just, I grew up Muslim. And and a part of me feels weird assigning value to that. I'd almost rather be judged on merit, that I'm a good journalist. Therefore, I deserve to be at a magazine. What do you say to that? And how would you convince me that there is value there? I think, first of all, it's a misnomer to think that if you are going for diverse talent, that you're foregoing a a talented, skilled person. And that it's probably that's probably one of my biggest frustrations. The reality is we're joining into a system that has been constructed in some ways, especially in tech. There's a whole value chain that you have to understand. And that is girls and minorities stop raising their hands very, very early on in math. Math and science being the catalyst to um, science, technology, engineering careers. By the time you get to middle school, are you, uh, you? do you have the best teachers? Do you have best access? Do you have best education? 
and then you start looking at um, high school, are you being recommended for the AP, the advanced placement courses that help you get into, you know, the better schools? And I mean, there's just there's a whole system here that has to be discussed when you think about about merit. Right. And so do I want to be I know that I'm here because of my talent. It is not because I am a black and a woman. Um, I happen to be a black woman, but I'm a very skilled, very talented um, uh, person, individual. It's just unfortunate that the system has to put has 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 us in a place in which we have to put targets um, because we have to equalize um, because you know kind of because of the systemic racism that exists. And so um, I mean that's my take on it. And and I think that you can still get and you go to talent pay like merit that's merit but you have to go to different places to get that and the system has it has has been an indicator of where we should go let's go to MIT let's go to Stanford so then therefore you're only going to get a certain type of profile if you go to those schools no dis on those are great schools obviously but you have to be able to look at there's more talent out there that looks like us right that's the HBCUs, that's the HSIs, you know, that's even going to PWIs, predominantly white schools, but going down layers that of, of going into the organizations where you're going to find diversity because they're associated with uh, NSBE, the National Society of Black Engineers, and SWE, Society of Women Engineers, and, you know, different things like that. So that, again, it doesn't forego the talent that we bring. Companies know when they're doing checkbox hires, whether it's, a, you know, you, well, we have a woman and a Latinx and an LGBTQ person, check, check, physical disability, check, multi-generational check. Like it is noticed when you do the checkbox hire. If a company is not committed to how these hires will add to their organization and how they will grow in their organization, how they will lead in their organization, then these hires don't stay. When you don't invest in what that looks like to not just about bringing them in, but helping them stay. That's literally what my job is. It's not about getting employers to be interested or to engage or hire women in technology. It's to make them stay, feel included, grow in their role, be paid fairly. I had like a couple other questions that you sort of answered in there. I was going to ask if it's possible to still be in the room and still be invisible. Do you have anything more that you want to say on that or do you feel like you, you got it? I believe it's absolutely possible to be in these rooms and to still be invisible. Like where invisibility happens when our words and our thoughts and our experience is not taken into consideration and in, in especially in important conversations and discussions, right? So that's when those mistake ads happen. That's when those campaign rollouts that, you know, is offensive to to. A variety of groups of people occur when when the voices of people are in the space, but not accounted for or taken into consideration. So oftentimes we believe that, oh, maybe they weren't there in the company or maybe they weren't at the table or in that meeting. Sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's just they were silent. Sometimes it's that, that their thoughts, their feelings, their experiences, all of these things were not taken into consideration. So, yes. And another thing I'm really curious about, Leslie, is that your work is specifically to eliminate diversity issues at HP. 
Have you ever thought about whether or not your work will ever be finished? I used to say, yeah, I want to work myself out of a job. Um, and I think that's like so naive um, because the reality is, is we just keep evolving, right? There's going to always be something for us to fight for. The thing that I love about the DEI work and since George Floyd's murder, it's actually evolved to racial equality and social justice. And there's always been a hint of that for those of us in the background, but it's now at the forefront that we can talk about it. We, it used to be the purple elephant on the table. Now it's like, we're just talking about this, right? We're gonna deal with it. And so do I think that there's an end to this? No, I do think that we'll continue to evolve the conversation. And one of the places that HP is evolving it to is around social impact, because there's climate action, there's around human rights, and there's about digital equity. Customers are demanding um, corporations and companies that you speak to this and that you be a upstander versus a bystander. And, um, and so I think that that's the space that we're evolving to that I'm actually very excited about. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about how employees can make themselves feel more secure and satisfied, or if that's up to the companies that hire them. I always feel that we are co-creators, right? We can't ever leave the, the responsibility of our destiny or our future or our career up to an organization. Even just our hopes and our dreams, we have to actually put action and effort into these things, right? So um, that being said, I think employees should always go into a space knowing what they want, how they want to grow, how they want to evolve, how they want to invest their time, energy, and effort into an organization. Um, what organizations could do to support that is also to have a better roadmap and open and honest dialogues about what does these, how, how does this growth plan work for both of them? Well, I think it's I, I think it's both. I think that one, you know, companies have to have really good um, systems and, and, and structures and programs and processes and policies in place. But I think, too, as individuals, we need to come in and we need to own our space. And the best way to do that is when you do go to a company that has a culture that is welcoming of and inclusive and, you know, gives you the opportunity to belong and to innovate and to really grow yourself. And, and so I think it's a combination of both things. You know, we can't just sit back and wait for somebody to hand us something, give us something or, you know, have a prescriptive way in which we go about it. If your company is not doing it for you, seek out your mentors, seek out um, confidants, seek out your community that will help uplift you and you can do the same for them in order to have the support that you need. And so company investment matters, but we need to come in with the mindset that they brought me here for a reason and I'm gonna contribute to my best. the show. Scoot Over was dreamt up by our executive producer, Feroz Ledeck. Feroz was called on by the famous Rothschild family to transform their huge philanthropic legacy. 
As a former investment banker who was born in the Congo, grew up in Canada, and now works in Paris, Faroz embodies many facets of diversity. He champions cross-cultural dialogue by bringing together entrepreneurs and thought leaders to make a better world. And now more than ever, he's convinced by the importance of sharing these incredible conversations. Scoot Over is hosted by me, Eamon Ismail. It's produced by Ray Klonsky and Rima Shakir. The original theme song was scored by Jordan Wallace, and additional music was provided by Slip.Stream, and it was mixed and mastered by Michael Muffet.